Psalm 39 here tonight here. It's kind of uh, maybe appropriate that we have a humble crowd tonight. Obviously, we got many more, several more women than we have men tonight. I'm thankful for each one here. We got a mature audience here tonight. I mean that mature in the fact that you're, most of you are veterans in the, the work of the Lord and been Christians for a number of years, of course. And, and uh, this is a strong meat message. It's a message that uh, is probably not been spoken of or people have no interest for or uh, that don't love the Lord. Let me just start off by just telling you a quick story and I'll tie it in with our subject at hand tonight. Psalm 39, we'll look at verses 1 to 5 and, and uh, park on one verse here tonight and one word of one verse and you see the word. Uh, but yesterday, Pastor uh, Eric Kreeble, some of you remember Brother Kreeble, and uh, he'll be preaching for us one of these Sunday nights, I'm sure, in the next few uh, weeks or months. But uh, Brother Kreeble took Sonny and I up to, to blew off the whole day and went up to uh, Vermont. I don't know, anybody been to the Calvin Coolidge uh, homestead? Anybody at all? Oh, I would encourage you to go. I was so blessed. And about, about south-central Vermont, 150-mile drive, 175 miles, whatever it was, and a beautiful place, Plymouth Gap, population 29. Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president of the United States, he was the vice president of the United States, farm boy, and one of the most beautiful little Shangri-Las in all of the world, for that matter, and the beautiful green mountains on both sides, the little country store, I want to tell you about it. And uh, he was the vice president under Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding dies in the middle of his term, about two and a half years in, and, and of course, uh, Calvin, quiet Calvin, uh, became the president of the United States and then was reelected for four more years. And then the middle, late 20s, of course, through the, the stock market crash of 29, of course. And he's a farm boy from Vermont. And if you go there, it was just so fa fascinating. The little country store, they've kept it original. He was our president. Now think about this, about 90 years ago. The country store is right there. They got the, that his mom and dad ran. It's, uh, oh, it's one-sixth of this auditorium. It's just one-eighth of this auditorium. Just a little, it's not even, it's, the, the, this row of pews is larger than the store. And behind the store attached was the house that they lived in. I saw the bedroom he grew up in the president of the United States. He grew up in a bedroom about uh, yay wide, about uh, 10 feet long. You can go there. His original blanket is still on the bed, and the original furnishings still there and so forth. But then they, they moved uptown. They moved across from the, the, the old little house on the, attached to the, to the grocery store with the pump outside, the one pump that 11 cents a gallon, and it's still there. And uh, then across the street, they built a beautiful mega, and I'm being facetious, I live in a nicer, most of us live in nicer houses than the President of the United States lived in. And, uh, but the, they built another farmhouse across the street. Now just, uh, just literally, uh, and it's this close, I mean the, the country store, the house attached is shorter than from here to the back of the auditorium and then you go about 10 yards and there's the church. So over here's the new house they bought, built, here's the store, here's the first house and then there's the church that he went to every single Sunday. A Protestant Puritan type church, uh, of course, and uh, we got to go in, still original wood and so forth, 1870s building or so, and uh, I think he was born in about 18, in fact, he was born in 1870, as a matter of fact, and uh, the Summer White House, oh, it was so neat, you got to go there, I'm telling you, beautiful, pristine, the beautiful mountains, and uh, again, population 29, I could pretty much tell you all, all the neighbors if I wanted to take the time, but the Summer White House was above 
the country store. The president and the cabinet met in June, July, and August. Did you know presidents of the United States used to take off three months in the summertime? Boy, just think how far along our country would be if we, or our government would take off three months in the summertime. We'd be a whole lot better off, I'm sure. And uh, when they had to meet for emergencies, they met in a little humble room. I was telling Caleb, uh, honestly, I mean, can you imagine this, the president and his cabinet meeting in a humble room 90 years ago? I've been to the miles and miles and miles of corridors of granite and marble in Washington, D.C. now for our congressmen and so forth. I mean, the lowliest congressman in, in uh, Washington, D.C., the lowliest, looks like an opulent king compared to the president of the United States 90 years ago. And they conducted business up there, and then uh, when they got done with their hour or two business, for the whole nation, he'd go out and go, he'd go to his farm with a, just like the Mennonites, and he'd, he'd, he'd hay, hay his fields, so he'd, he'd, the gardens are still there. They try to replicate everything as it was. And uh, it was a different day, is what I'm trying to say. And he, he had more speeches than FDR. And FDR was, a, was a, uh, uh, of course, for 14 years was president of the United States, four terms. And uh, he spoke, he's kind of a misnomer, quiet cow, I can tell you so much. I learned so much. But I'm going to tell you, I, and I don't know if he was truly a Christian. I know he went to church every week of his life. And even when he was a pastor, or rather when he was the president of the United States, he went to church. He never missed church. In our country, I would dare say, got along a whole lot better with taking three months off in the summertime and, uh, and the president uh, and uh, his people going back. And he was farmer the rest of the time. And even when he was, when he was pastoring, or rather the president of the United States, it dovetails into, we got to talking about it. Did you know Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher that uh, ever uh, considered the greatest preacher of the last thousand years? Did you know for the last 20 years of his, he only lived to be 56. The last 20 years of his life, uh, he would go, every summer he spent in Mentone, France. Take the whole summers off. And there was a day when sabbaticals were part of, uh, of, of, of pastors and preachers and teachers and and, of course, that's school teachers to this day follow this format of uh, three months off in the summertime or three months off of sabbatical because you say, why is this? There's a purpose for all of this. You say, there is? I just thought it was just a time for more vacation. No. There's a purpose for this, and it leads into our text this evening here. And um, so much I want to say, but we're going to be still here tonight, and you'll understand what I'm saying here in a few minutes here. Let's, uh, I tell you what, since we'll be sitting for just a few minutes here tonight, let's stand in respect to God's word, and let's read verses 1 through 5 of Psalms 39. And we'll read them all in unison since we only have five verses. And uh, try to, I'll set the cadence. And let's read with understanding as we read these first five verses. For time's sake, we'll just read uh, the first five verses and not the entire psalm, all right? Verses 1 through 5. Psalm 39, reading together. Ready? I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle, while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace, even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me, while I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as the hand breath, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity, Selah. 
Sila, stop and think about that. Verse number eight. My days are a hand breath. Going back to Calvin Coolidge. He had a heart attack. No warning sign at all. At 60 years of age, the President of the United States was dead. And uh, we went to his burial site <laughs> about a quarter mile away in the backcountry woods. You got to see it. There's Coolidge. There's a, there's a monument for the President of the United States on a backcountry road in Vermont. And uh, his days were but a hand breath. Here, we're here, all here today and gone tomorrow. Selah. Stop and meditate on that. But here's our verse here tonight, and I don't know how far we're going to get here. There's so much. I want you to notice verse 3. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The only time we find this word in all the Bible. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue. I want to deal with that subject of musing tonight. Let's make our prayer. Heavenly Father, Spirit of God, in just the moments that we have, Lord, teach us thy word tonight. Lord, teach us a little bit about musing. We'll thank you and praise you for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated tonight. Webster's musing. Characterized by reflection or deep thought. Thinking. Meditation. The word meditation is our fill-in-the-blank word. Deliberation, second fill-in-the-blank word. Pondering. Notice that word musing. We use that in a different context, don't we? We talk about and, uh, amusement. A is the Greek prefix, of course. When you put an A in front of, uh, you've got theist, and then you have atheist, right? No God. And amusement is no musing. No thinking. And what are filled tonight all across America? Amusement parks, theme parks. I mean, Disney World is where it's at tonight and every night of the year. It's the number one attraction, the amusement center. People are all about being amused. And uh, we have a, Caleb shared with me today, just a little sidebar. I was very thankful just a week and a half ago. I don't want to get too far off tangent, but I was thankful we had our, our Chuck Wiggin cookout, as well, I call it. And we had 130 here, and I was thankful for that, and we had a good time. And uh, so you have a, have a feast and uh, have a crowd. Uh, you, go, you have uh, feasting and uh, fun, and you have a crowd, but have fasting and prayer, and all three of you will be there. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that. That uh, amusement, everybody's coming. Musing, what's that? That means I have to think. That means I have to ponder I have to meditate. Did you know that this book of Psalms is a book of musing? The, the entire book of Psalms is a book of musing, and it is the longest book in the Bible, and that's not by accident, it's truth. And it's a book of meditation. Two things about the book of Psalms, and we just picked out one verse and one little phrase of one verse and one little word, that word musing. But Psalms is a book of musing. It's a book of prayers, the whole book is a book of prayers. Let's go to Psalm 5, verse 1. And quickly, would somebody, there quickly, it's almost a misnomer to say that, but Psalm 5, 1, would somebody read that for us, please? Nice and loud. Verse 1? Yes, please. Give ear to my word, O Lord. Consider my meditation. 
Psalm 25, let's all turn there just a few pages back in our Bible. We can all turn there. Just glance at it. I think I'll take this for time's sake. And it says here in Psalm 25, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. And we could just read every, every verse of this psalm. This, 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 this book of psalms is a, song of, it's a book of prayers. Prayers to God. Meditation number two, it's a, it's, the psalms is a book of the heart. Psalms is all about the heart. You know, uh, Christianity, I've used it many times, one of the early church fathers, as it's called, is credited with saying Christianity is largely an affair of the heart. We don't even become a Christian without the heart getting involved. You know, there are people that can recite to you verbatim, I'm sure the Romans road, there are people that can tell you how to be saved, but they're not saved. Why? It's up here, and it's not down here. Until your heart breaks, your heart of stone, your heart of flesh, God gives you a new heart, and you cry out with your heart, not only just with your lips, but with your heart, man believes unto righteousness. And so the book of Psalms is a book of the heart. It's a book of prayers. And the Lord said, and he gave you the, I don't think it's by accident. In fact, I know it's by divine design. That the largest book of our 66 books in the Bible is a prayer book. It's a meditation book. It's a book of, uh, of, of the heart. It's a, it's a musing book. stop and consider and to meditate. It's a book of meditation. And so the Lord said, he said to his disciples, and there's times when we need to come and meditate. Jesus said to his disciples, I mean, he was a busy guy, don't you think? Come ye apart and rest a while. We see throughout the book of Psalms, we see that word selah. We don't even have time to look at it, but the word means stop, think, meditate. And so it's a book of understanding. Turn to, let me show you one more verse, not in your, your 49. Turn to chapter 49 or Psalms 49. Psalms are not chapters for the record. Psalms are Psalms. Psalms 49, verse 3. It says this, My mouth shall speak of wisdom and the meditation. Now one more time. Meditation takes work. It takes thought. It takes the brain being engaged. My meditation, or pardon me, the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. Psalm 73, let me just give you another verse, verse 17, about the, the psalmist as he prayed and he, couldn't, he saw the, the prospering of the wicked and he said, how can this be? Then when he came into the sanctuary of God, the Bible says, then he understood their way. He understood their end. What are we doing tonight here? We're, I want you to consider the lost art of meditation. And we're, I, I almost feel bad to say this. I've already, I hate to hurry, but I'm hurrying as we're trying to slow down and meditate. <laughs> so we're going to hurry through this next few minutes here because I want to slow down for the last several minutes if we could. So consider the lost art of meditation. People don't think today. We have too much stuff to entertain us. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm prepping you, and you're the, you're, it's really good that you're the first core to hear this. I'm going to be challenging people to unplug. 
and uh, we're going to have a week or two weeks of unplugging. You say, what do you mean by that? I'm telling you right now, these cell phones are destroying us. I'm telling you right now, this internet, this internet is, is captivating us. It used to be TV, it used to be radio, and those are all captivating us. And I, hey, I'm not, I'm not pointing at you, I'm pointing at you one finger, I got three pointing back at me. Busy, busy, busy all the time. Go, 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 go. No time for to be quiet, to be still and know that I am God, the Lord said. We've lost this. Let me give you several, let's fill in the blanks here if we could. Now, meditation is a help to prayer. We don't know how we should pray. The disciples said, Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. Meditation is a help to pray. Romans 8, 26, I don't have time to give all the verses, 27. When it's our spirit. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. It's okay to stop. It's okay to, prayer should be God talking to us. We think prayer is always us talking to God. Lord, teach me your way. Lord, in my corrupt mind, I can't figure out the way to do whatever. I don't know your will. Let me shut up in my mind here and quit finagling. Try to figure out and get you to do what I want you to do. No, be still. God, speak to my heart. So, bullet point one, the, the nurse of prayer. The nurse of prayer. Nurses help. And oh, how we need help in our prayer life. And, it, and the nurse of prayer is meditation. For time's sake. i got to quit saying that. I don't like, even like saying that myself. Meditation is like oil to the lamp. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Meditation is the oil of the lamp. You've got to have a lamp to have light. But if you don't have any oil, no light. The lamp of prayer will soon go out unless meditation cherish and support it. How can you pray? Did you ever get down on your knees? I've done this, I'm embarrassed to tell you how many hundreds of times. You know, you go through your prayer list or you go through a list of things to pray for. If you, you know, if you're just an average Christian or whatever, I mean, you run out of things to pray for in five minutes. We don't have any ammunition or anything to pray because you don't take time out to meditate. It's, a, again, a lost art. Here's another analogy, next bullet point. It says, when the gun is full of powder, it is fittest to discharge. So when the mind is full of good thoughts... A Christian is fittest by prayer for discharge. Now he, um, I, I got a blank. Do you have a blank? What's that next word? Or no, okay. He sends up whole volleys of sighs and groans to heaven. Next bullet point, last bullet point rather. Meditation first furnishes with matter, matter or material to pray. It gives us the matter to pray with, the substance to pray with. Meditation. And then it furnishes with a heart to pray. It's not just words. I hate to continue to impugn myself, but most of my prayers when I pray for our food, dear Lord, thank you for this food. Bless our bodies. Thank you for it. Bless the rest of this day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I mean, I can almost do that in my sleep or a very, very slight variant thereof. Let's eat. It's, there's no substance there. It's just, it's just rote repetition. And we, you know, we pray several times. And we were in a hurry. We're at lunch break at work or whatever. And then, Lord, bless you. Thank you. And not that we can't pray to the Lord quick. But there's no heart there. There's no substance. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, we've got to pray for, I'll tell you one funny story. It was at a relative's house, one of my godly, more godlier relatives. We were there for Thanksgiving, and I will leave their name unnamed. And the, the father of the house said, well, now we've got to go around and, and tell everybody's got to say what they're thankful for. And meanwhile, the turkey's on the table, the, the stuffing's and the gravy's on the potato. And the, and I like to eat my Thanksgiving meal hot. And by the time we got done thanking everybody, I've been thinking, hurry up, hurry up, this food's getting cold, cold, cold. And, and it was, it was cold by the time we got done. And I, and I kept, at, I had to, in my, as we were praising God, I had to keep asking the Lord, forgive me, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm thankful for this person, I'm thankful for, but Lord, I want to eat. For, forgive me, Lord. And <laughs> I'm not suggesting we got to pray 20 minutes before we let our meal get cold. But I'm just saying there's times when we need to meditate. Here's some quotes from some of the famous uh, seers of days gone by, shall we say. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Prayer is the child of meditation. Meditation leads, leads the van and prayer brings up the rear. Matthew Poole, the commentator, says, My thoughts kindled my passions. Bernard said, Lord, I will never come away from thee without thee. Ooh, think about that. Lord, I'm not getting up. I'm not uh, leaving my devotions without you, without getting something from your word, without having something to speak to my heart. Again, Watson, last quote. Let this be a Christian's resolution not to leave off his meditations of God till he finds something of God in him. Some moving of the bowels after God, some flamings of love. The psalmist said, while I was musing, while I was meditating, the fire burned. Jeremiah was in prison, Jeremiah 29 and 20 verse 9, he said he, he, he was festering in prison, he was in a dirty, filthy, cold dungeon, probably black, pitch black, and he says, why am I doing this? And he's starting to get mad at God, but he says, but his heart was, his word was in my heart as a burning fire in my bones, and I could not stay. The word of God was a burning fire in his, and he began to meditate on that as being in the kindle flames. So interesting, these, this truth in, in uh, Where is it? I didn't write it down. Oh, well, I had another verse I wanted to share with you. But, but uh, consider this here, and we're going to practice here in just a moment. But consider, and it's not, I should, I should have a nice, nice five-point outline going, and I never even put it on the bulletin. But, but consider what the lost art of meditation does for us. It soothes us, soothes us. It, uh, it uh, settles us, settles us. Man, this world is a crazy world. We meditate on God, it settles us. Hey, folks, we win. 
We're already winners. We're more than conquerors. We've been talking about this in our first John series for weeks on end now. We're already on the winning side. The victory is, the, it is finished. The battle's over. When we meditate upon these things, when I think upon these things, it, it soothes, it settles, it, it uh, solidifies, it confirms the truth that we're right. I preached a message just last Sunday, of course. I know that I know the truth. I'm right. I don't do it arrogantly. I say it humbly. Why God would reveal his grace to me, I do not understand. It humbles me. Meditation, musing, stabilizes in the midst of a rocky sea, an uh, ocean full of turbulence. We can set our sails for, uh, with a smooth course and the winds and waves rock if they will, but we're, we're, God will take care of us. The captain of our, our, our fate is still with us. And of course, meditation like praise, it strengthens us. Strengthens us for further battles. And so many things that meditation does. Now, tonight I wanted to, just in the minutes that we have, and we're going to, we're time-scheduled creatures. We're, we're in a time, time zone, if we will, and we all have the same amount of time. Only have 168 hours in a week. We come for one hour, one hour and five minutes on a Wednesday night. But I wanted to practice the art of meditation, and I chose to, there's a reason why this song before us was written in 1707. There's a reason why it's still around. Because of the, the beauty of the meditation of it, the musing of it. Some of these songs today, I don't have time to get off on another tangent. But some of these so-called Christian songs today, you know, 11, seven words 11 times. Nothing wrong with uh, repetition sometimes, and it's okay. To God be the glory. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But these words are so rich and so deep. This is Isaac Watts. There's a day when most Americans, I dare say most colonial Americans, knew the history of Isaac Watts and knew of the, the Watts hymnal. And then uh, that phrase at uh, Bunker Hill, I believe it was, give them Watts, boys. They had nothing left but to, to, to jam their, their guns with, but the song, song books of the Congregational Preacher's Church Isaac Watts hymn books. Give him Watts, boys. But Isaac Watts wrote that wonderful song, and I just want to, there's no way we can get through this here. We, we, we said this, at, we did this at the nursing home this morning here, and it was impromptu, and I got to thinking about it more. I, I, I read this verse this morning, for the record, Psalm 46. We're supposed to be on our series that I started like a, three months ago that you probably forgot about. I'll, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get back on it next week. But I got to verse number three, while I was musing, the fire burned. And Lord uh, touched my heart. And I thought of this song. I thought of Isaac Watts' wonderful song. When I survey the wondrous cross. Now I just want to, this is class time here. The next seven minutes that left of time. I want to ponder on that for a minute. When I survey the wondrous cross. What's so wondrous about a place of execution, a crucifixion? What's so wondrous about that? It's horrid. It's terrible. But not to the eye that knows who died on that wondrous cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, 
on which the Prince of Glory died. I mean, not who was this that died on the cross? Was Jesus just another famous figure of world history? Did he come to be just a good teacher? Confucius was a good teacher. Mohammed was a teacher. Mary Baker Eddy was a teacher. Was he just a moral agent? Who was this one that came to the cross? He was the Prince of Glory. Think of that. I just figured this out a few years ago. I've used it many times now. But the highest of the high came out of the millions or hundreds of thousands of rivers throughout, America, or throughout the world. Hundreds of thousands of rivers. River and riverlets and streams. And it was not by accident Jesus came to the lowest river in the world. He went from the highest of the high when he started his, his, his earthly ministry at the age of 30. He was baptized in the lowest river in the world. That Jordan River starts off at 600 feet below sea level and goes to 1,300 feet below sea level when it's into the Dead Sea. The highest of the high came to the lowest of the low, the Prince of Glory. And then those Romans keep his hands on that cross. Does Romans tie him to that cross? No, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set them free. He's, think about this. When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. What is the greatest possession that you have? Don't say your spouse. Don't say your car. <laughs> your house. Don't say your children. My richest gain is Christ. Think of what Paul said about all of his accomplishments in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I mean, he, all of his education, all of his riches, all of his, all of his posterity, all of his uh, privilege, all of his academia, all that he had, he caught in all these things, but, do you remember? Dung, that he may win Christ. I don't want to spoon feed you, but look, look at these words here tonight here, and I'm going to just go through verses 2 and 3, just read them. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save, or only, only in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then verse number four. Were the whole realm of nature mine, if I had $121 billion to lose like Mr. Zuckerberg last week, $121 billion, what if I could give that? What if I could get that money? What if I could give it? Well, that'd be a lot to give. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, 
so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I know we've got to wind up here, but I, and I, I, hey, listen, tonight I've been preaching as much to myself as I've preached to any of you, I promise you. I remember uh, when I was in college, I just said with an illustration, I think of some books that greatly affected my life. I'm thinking of John Bunyan's books. Of course, there was Pilgrim's Progress, but I really liked Holy War. I read that I taught that for a year in my class, in, uh, in my sixth grade class, my first year of, of, uh, for Bible study, my first year as a teacher in a Christian school. But then I really liked... Uh, Sinners in, uh, uh, I can't think of the name of the book, all of a sudden. And again, I loved it. Uh, uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And you say, Preacher, why, why did you bring those books up? Now, many of you don't know what I'm talking about, but Bunyan was in prison, Bedford Prison in England for 13 years. When he went into prison, the King of England put him in prison because he preached without a license. His daughter was four years old. When he, got her, when he saw her the next time, she was 17. Bunyan had a lot of time in that prison. That's where he wrote most of his books. And there, some of the richest English, English literature or, or English prose and allegory that you, and that's ever been written in the history of 2,000-year history of Christianity. I encourage you to read those very deep writings. Oh, that old English, I admit. Half the words are, this a portion of the words, you know, you have to get a dictionary and find out what they mean. And a lot of it you won't understand if you don't know your Bible pretty well. But the deep meditation. You know, I remember, no, no boast, I hope I'm not doing that tonight. But I remember how God worked in my heart. As a college young man. And uh, thinking I was going to go into Marines or thinking that maybe I should have a career, maybe I should... Be nice to make some money, and and the uh, Lord got in my hold of my heart as I was musing, meditating. And I said, "It's worth it all. I think I'll serve Him. I don't think I'm losing anything by serving Him. Listen, you're not losing a thing. If you gave everything you had to Him, it would be a present far too small." Oh, the beauty of meditating, the beauty of musing. We are the richest man. I was thinking, I got to close over time, but one more analogy. I don't know if you're following all my thought process here tonight. I'm sure you're not. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah, I like our president that's in right now. I'm glad he's a billionaire. I wish everybody could be a billionaire. I'd rather have a billion billionaires than a billion people with no money. You know, so I like our president. If I had to live in Calvin Coolidge's house or Mary Largo, I'd probably take Mary Largo. That's me. But I'm saying, and I'm not, I don't know, I don't know if for sure if Calvin Coolidge was truly a believer in Christ. He was a devout churchgoer, that's for sure. And I don't think that Mr. Trump is, President Trump is a Christian. I think he's, God's uh, blessed us with, with him. I'm thankful for that, but I don't think he's a Christian. And uh, praying for him, that's right. But I'll take Calvin Coolidge in that little six foot by eight foot. I'll take that room. I'll take the, 
the beauty of being able to just meditate in God in a little country place in Vermont over all the riches and all the popularity and all the pomp and circ- and all that comes along with the, the highlights of amusement life that so many millions of people have. Give me Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. Why don't we sing that tonight here? I know I've gone over time. I want to be done by 8 o'clock. But let's